If you think autistic people are incapable of understanding literature, think again. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with Ralph Savarese, professor of English here at Grinnell, about his new book, See It Feelingly, Classic Novels, Autistic Readers, and the Schooling of a No-Good English Professor. We'll also share some Grinnell music for the first time on the podcast. Today's featured artist is Seth Hansen from the class of 2017. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Walking home in late November, any leaves left have turned to amber, but it's already too dark to see. I wish that this could last forever, feel it coming. Big disaster after that Can't imagine what will be But I bet It won't be easy For many years, scientific researchers have claimed that autistic people suffer from a limited ability to understand language, engage in imaginative play, and appreciate literature. But this prevailing view of autism didn't match what Ralph Savarese experienced while reading books with his autistic son, DJ. With this book, Savarese challenges our understanding of autism, but also how we think about literature and the world around us. Over the course of many years, he read novels with autistic people, including his son, DJ, who is one of the first non-speaking people to graduate from college, and with a 3.96 GPA, no less. The insights Savarese gleaned from this experience are essential, so we're dedicating this week's episode to our conversation. Also, he likes to talk. He readily admitted that many professors, himself included, have a disease of sorts. They can't stop talking. They go on and on and on. Ralph told me that when he and his son would go on walks around Grinnell, DJ would see a faculty member in the distance, and he would sit down, right in the middle of the sidewalk preparing himself for the unbearably long conversations that would ensue. Like DJ, maybe you should sit down for this one. It's a long conversation, but it's incredibly powerful, and I promise it's worth it. Just to orient you for the discussion, some of you may not be familiar with the terminology we'll use, which comes from the neurodiversity movement. I asked Ralph to define some of these key concepts for us before we really dig in. Neurotypical, neuroatypical, those words emerge um, as a function of folks who do not want to think about value judgments as they attach themselves to one kind of neurotype, mm. right? So the idea of neurotypicals, um, uh, um, let me just pause for a second and say there are some folks who, who don't believe neurotypicals exist at all. Mm-hmm. And there's some science to suggest that we really are um, each uh, quite unique um, in the way that we think. But the neurodiversity movement itself suggests that there are diverse minds and that um, we need to understand that a departure from a norm is not necessarily bad, right? So folks working in this field have learned a lot from folks in 
ethnic studies, queer studies, recognizing that we're deeply, deeply invested in norms mm. and that that investment in norms is neither fair nor nor productive. So you have neurotypical, you have neuroatypical. Um, neuro, some people use the term neurodivergent. Um, they prefer that uh, word um, as it describes somebody who diverges from some typical or standard way mm -hmm. of thinking, thinking or operating. And so what are common misconceptions that, uh, you know, scientific researchers or, or maybe the uninformed public uh, has about, you know, what autistic people are capable of as it pertains to reading? I mean, the first thing I would like to point out is that um, even though it's a stereotype, I think many of the folks who have written literature over the last thousand plus years have themselves hardly been typical. Mm. So I think it's super interesting to me that we may be aware of that fact and at the same time imagine that there are neuroatypical readers who are incapable of reading this thing that uh -huh. neuroatypical people have been producing. <laughs> so that strikes me as a kind of deeply ironic uh, fact. Yeah. Um, but historically, the definition of autism spoken about a triad of impairments, so impairments in language, impairments in imagination, and impairments in social understanding. And so those impairments in language could have to do with all sorts of things. But, for example, there's research that suggests that autistics don't understand metaphor or, or irony. Um, and once you start thinking about metaphor and irony and other – I mean, these are, these are basic – you know, ingredients, as it were, of, of literary language. Um, if you're not very good at understanding uh, social conflict and nuance, according to this definition of autism, fiction would not be, literary fiction would not be a place for you to go um, and, uh, and, and enjoy the way in which conflict is developed, explored, and the like. But since the neurodiversity movement... Um, you know, first came about maybe 20, 25 years ago and has really gathered steam over the last 15 years. And the emphasis has shifted from deficits to difference. Mm -hmm. And people started asking different questions and had a different starting point. Rather than saying, these people can't do this, we might say, what does a different mind bring to the business of reading mm -hmm. literature? And of course, as the father of an autistic son, you know, I've read uh, books with my son DJ forever. And that experience um, taught me all sorts of things about the inadequacy of clinical description of autism. And I know lots of other autistic people. And, you know, slowly but surely, I started recognizing the degree to which these descriptions, these medical descriptions, this understanding of autism as a series of deficits um, in no way lined up with what I understood to be my own experience with autistic people, and then nor did it line up with my experience with autistic people reading books. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had, I've had plenty of autistic folks in the classroom at Grinnell, in fact, in creative writing classes and in other classes, and I didn't see any uh, desperate inability to understand what was happening in a poem or in a novel. Uh -huh. um, I saw... Lots of anxiety, um, but I know lots of people who have anxiety. I know lots of writers with anxiety. Um, I, I deal with a fair amount of anxiety, but that anxiety has nothing to do with understanding. Uh -huh. 
your experience beginning with raising your son and reading with him has taught you that those stereotypes don't necessarily capture the realities right. of, of autism. How did your fatherly reading sessions turn into this book? So, um, I mean, let me back all the way up. I mean, I, I've been in the habit of reading at least one poem aloud to my wife in our household. And I remember back before my son was literate, just starting to type on a computer. He's non-speaking, so he uses yeah. a text-to-voice synthesizer. And I was reading Dylan Thomas's poem, Fern Hill, aloud. And it's an incredibly musical poem. And DJ typed, very great sound, very great sound. Um, and he was he was responding to just the pattern musicality of poetry beyond the words, right? Just beyond what the poem might mean. And, and I would say just as a side note, um, I think this is a real autistic strength. It's the thing that I have to actually teach neurotypical readers and writers of poetry at Grinnell. Yeah, yeah, words mean things. I get it. <laughs> we do that all the time. But let's make some patterns where where the words are doing musical things. Mm-hmm. That's the part I have to teach typical kids. So DJ, DJ's first, one of his first things that he ever Types is very great sound, very great sound in response to, to Dylan Thomas. And, you know, um, just started recognizing that he was responding. And um, so I got in the habit of reading with him. And, uh, you know, jump ahead, uh, junior year of high school. He's now 26. Uh, the assigned central text is Huckleberry Finn, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I was a little nervous about this because even though the book is told in a kind of comic way, Huck is terribly, savagely beaten by his father. He's adopted. Um, and DJ's own experience um, as a foster, first with his birth mother, who tried to kill him in the bath, and then in foster care where he was savagely beaten, I thought, how is my son going to respond to this text, especially since the way Twain has Huck narrate the story is in a kind of sort of comic shenanigans Uh sort of mode. And lots of critics have talked about what is offensive with respect to dealing with slavery in this manner, but almost no one has talked about what is offensive um, with respect to talking about adoption and child abuse in this manner. So I was really worried about this um, because contrary to the stereotype, DJ, um, if anything, responds with excess emotion yeah. to um, difficult situations. So I decided we'd read this thing together in uh, the, uh, the I put a master bedroom addition onto our house in Grinnell. And we just would sit up in that bed sort of pretending it was like a raft. <laughs> and I'd constantly try when he was getting upset to nudge him more toward a kind of critical artistic reflection. How, wh- how's this book written? What, what's the language doing? How does Twain have Huck speak? How does Twain have Jim speak? What are the descriptions of the river like? Um, as a way of making him more analytical and less sort of in the, the, the experience of fear. Because the other thing I would point out is um, his own, only really good foster family in, in Florida was with a very proud a politically active African-American family who taught him a lot about civil rights. And, you know, for a little while, he actually thought he was black. Hmm. I mean, really, I mean, it wasn't about what his skin color was, but what his experience. And he's really invested in civil rights. 
decided to go to Oberlin College because they took the first African-American student in higher ed, first woman student in, in higher ed. And he was really keen on this, this narrative of freedom. Mm. And so, you know, of course, the narrative with, with Jim in Huck Finn is he's trying to get to freedom. And so there were a lot of things about that book that made me nervous. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure I wanted him to I wanted him to derive pleasure from reading. I want I wanted to modulate just how much he invested in reading. He also made me think a lot about why are the rest of us able to read such fearful books and immediately turn them into something enjoyable. Mm. And maybe there were maybe there were lots of other readers out there that I was unaware of who'd had very difficult experiences in their pasts or for whatever reason or were depressed. Here I am assigning Faulkner's As They Lay Dying or whatever other book and sort of clueless about what the experience might be like in their dorms and mm. what a struggle it might be like for some Grinnell students. Not that they don't enjoy it, but that the process itself might be overwhelming. They mm -hmm. might get clobbered by some of these books. Because when we go into the classroom, we don't talk about getting clobbered. Mm -hmm. We talk about what's the point of view, let's follow this motif, let's do this. We turn it into a kind of analytic enterprise. Yeah. And I tried to do that with DJ. And it, it eventually worked. And then um, you wanted to do it with other people as well. Yeah, and so uh, about the same time too, I. I met a young man who's the subject of chapter one. DJ's the subject of the prologue. Um, really, really famous non-speaking person with autism. He emigrated from India. His name is Tito Raharshi Mukhopadhyay. Um, came to America at 12. Um, and I was uh, working on a project with my wife about neurodiversity. We put together the first collection of essays on this concept. And so I, I flew to Austin to interview him. And... Um, at the end of this interview, he asked to be my student, which totally shocked me. Um, and I sort of flippantly said, um, well, come to Iowa, knowing full well he couldn't come to Iowa. And he'd never been allowed in a regular classroom, yeah. even though he'd, he'd well, at that written point, he'd written book. Th yeah, three <laughs> books by that point, three books, yeah. And was regarded, you know, many people regard him as having written the best book by the youngest member of our species. So he reads the writes the mind tree, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. And it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable book. I've taught it here at Grinnell. So he asked to be my student because he's never been allowed in a regular class. Lots of anxiety, lots of autistic uh, behaviors. I put quotations around that word. And so I throw out the idea that we'll do this by Skype. Because it's it's really becoming clear to me how privileged my son is, even though his life story is, is sort of crazy, right? That he starts as a homeless kid who's been nearly killed by his birth mother, abandoned for a while. He's in an institution, in foster homes. But now he's an upper middle class honor student in the local high school uh -huh. with a nice family and a nice house, having all sorts of opportunities. And there are plenty of other autistic folks. Um, who do not have opportunities. So I started doing this with my friend Tito. And Tito's mom is amazing. Um, she's homeschooled him, but she doesn't think he can sit in front of this computer screen uh -huh. for an hour to an hour and a half. And one of the things I say in the book is we should not underestimate the, you know, the engine of desire. 
And he shows her that he can indeed do it. And, you know, skip 10 years ahead, we're still doing it. And mm-hmm. every Sunday, I mean, I've read more books uh, with that young man. I, I think he's the, he's the engine of my own reading because mm-hmm. we're constantly plowing through uh, through books of, 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 of all kinds. So that's those two things, reading with my son, Huck Finn, meeting Tito, feeling like other people deserve a chance, those experiences, and then thinking, really, um, the world needs to hear more about um, autistic readers. One mm-hmm. final point I would make is that we've talked about the stereotypes that would suggest um, autism makes it impossible to read literature. The sort of flip side of that is all of the stereotype that says autistic strengths and talents exist only in math, science, computer science. And I knew lots of autistic people that, you know, they were okay at math and science, but that's not where they, that's not where their talents lay. And mm-hmm. so I really wanted to reach teachers and parents who might be inclined to only include their kid in a regular classroom for math and science. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years later, they say, you see, my kid's not any good at language mm-hmm. arts. Um, and I, I, I really want, want to get autistic kids in language arts classes. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of how this book um, gets started. Okay. Um, so for the book, you read some classic American novels with a variety of autistic readers. You are an English professor who knows his way around the pages of a book, but they end up teaching you about, um, you know, how they engage with literature and also about you and your neurotypical self and how, you know, you look at these texts and maybe um, what you've been missing out on. Did you expect that relationship to be so reciprocal? So one thing I would definitely say is that um, parenting is a humbling experience. If you're actually open to the experience and honest about your own inadequacies, you will constantly be confronted (laughs) with um, the failure of expectations, Uh (laughs) your own expectations, and and the problem with expectations, right? So so I think one of the great things about writing is that, you know, you got to be honest, right? Candor is appreciated in in creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I had no interest in writing this book in a way that made me seem, um, well, wonderful. Um, the the subtitle, No Good English Professor, <laughs> is on one hand a kind of joke and witty, but on, on, on the other hand, real. Um, and I think no matter how sympathetic you are to whatever group you imagine you're serving as an ally for, you're still going to make mistakes. And so I knew already from reading with my son that there were things that I would learn. The other thing I also knew is that autistic people were as diverse as Mm non-autistic people. And um, they would like things. One person would like something, another wouldn't. I mean, I go into a Grinnell classroom and there are 15 kids there. Um, You know, they're not the same. And thank God they're not the same (laughs) because it would be really, it would be really, really boring. But I would say the, the, the process of doing the ethnographical work for the book, that is, reading these books over time. So, for example, with Tito, I read Moby Dick for 17 months, Mm -hmm. two chapters a week, that that process 
this kind of slow, careful way we're making our way through these books. And we're doing it by Skype. And for the folks that don't speak, they're typing their comments on the sidebar. So I have everything they type. Mm-hmm. Right, Skype nicely collects that, and if they speak, I'm using my voice, my iPhone voice memo function, and I'm collecting enormous amount of data, um, and 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 that in and of itself is really really important, and I'm then able to you know use quotations. This is not, I mean, there's a lot of framing for me, there's a lot of interpretation for me, but the book has a ton of quotation. Yeah. Where you're hearing what these folks say, which I think is really, really important. Yeah. That that yes, I'm the filter. You encounter them through me, but you really hear so many of their words, and they also had a chance to read everything in the book, mm-hmm. um, ask for corrections, tell me what I got wrong. I then would try to then bring that back into the narrative, and then they finally approved what's in there. Um, so that so that it really does. I hope, get as close as possible to their account of reading. Um, How did you look at some of the text differently afterwards? Or maybe more broadly, how... How do you look at reading in general differently after the time that you spent with? Wow, so I mean, so many things. Um, so let me, let, let me start with the third chapter uh, about Dora Raymar- Raymaker, in which I read the sci-fi classic "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" I'd like to say two things. One, historically, literary critics have looked down on genre fiction. And so they have imagined that literary fiction is one thing, fantasy and sci-fi are another. And so it hasn't gotten the respect um, that other genres have received. Uh Much more recently it has. So this was interesting to me. Um, uh, And it was also interesting to me when I read um, Steve Silberman's Neurotribes book, which was a kind of history of uh, autism and the possibilities for neurodiversity. And he suggests that the folks who really give birth to the genre of uh, science fiction may have themselves uh, received an Asperger uh, diagnosis, maybe even an autism diagnosis, had it been available at the time. That's interesting to me. And then, um, um, uh, you know, I have a background in neuroscience as well, was a fellow at the Institute for Brain Sciences at Duke. And I'm really interested in the research that seems to show that autistics appear to be interested in objects, uh, inanimate objects more than faces, human Uh faces. What's that about? And and what do you have in sci-fi? You have objects coming to life. What What are androids or... Um, replicants, but this kind of weird middle ground between the human and the object. Mm. And so I thought to myself, you know, what what would an autistic reader bring to the business of reading sci-fi that a non-autistic reader wouldn't bring? That's a whole range of things. I mean, uh, Dora Raymaker made absolutely clear the extent to which she brought a history of stigma a history of exclusion, Mm. Um, but also many, many years as a computer coder who worked late at night without other humans because she had so much anxiety. 
as someone who had been laboring away at her own sci-fi fantasy novels, as someone who was really, really interested in objects and actually believed that most objects were alive mm. or, or interacted with objects in a way that they were alive. And so one of the things that became clear to me was when you talk, when, when autism experts talk about a failure of sociality in autistics and in, in, in autism, you could also talk about a failure of sociality in, in non-autistics. We don't. We, we restrict our sociality largely to humans and to a few animal species. Uh-huh. And then we treat the rest of the world as some object to be used or sold or destroyed. And that was a very profound um, you know, insight that came to me through this process of reading this novel. And of course, in the novel, the replicants are said to lack empathy, even uh-huh. as they're being hunted by these empathy-challenged humans. And then to get Dora's real sense of the way in which she feels autistic people and people with cognitive disabilities are hunted in this culture, demeaned, made fun of, uh-huh. people thinking of a cure, um, yeah. the need for a cure, that that this was incredible learning experience um, for me. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but this is really the premise of a kind of theory in my discipline called reader response theory. And its premise was that, um, that we need to stop talking about a general or ideal reader and recognize that there are individual readers who bring things to texts. And those individual readers are conditioned by categories we're aware of, gender, sexual orientation, race, class, age, um, all sorts of things. Also neurology. Yeah. And I really think there is something to the fondness for sci-fi in autism. Uh But it's not, it, it shouldn't be interpreted the way autism experts have traditionally interpreted it as a failure to understand human sociality. No, as an expansion yeah. of what, what sociality really could be. And also as a, as a way to teach those of us who are human and somehow arrogantly human about what, what deserves our attention. Mm. I know in the, in the forward, um, Stephen Cusisto asks, what if, what if no reader is yeah, neurotypical, yeah, yeah. you know? I think yeah. that's powerful to think about. I think it's really powerful. It also is in line increasingly with what neuroscientists are thinking about. I think there's a lot to be said in thinking about um, particu- very particular neurologies. There's a, a woman who teaches at Emory, a lit prof with a science background named Laura Otis, who's actually a MacArthur fellow, who published a book from Cambridge um, in which she interviews artists, really successful artists and scientists about the ways they think. And she recognized that while we can probably continue to make generalizations, those generalizations don't get us anywhere. The particular ways in which they think and make their breakthroughs, those stories are much more interesting and useful yeah. and helpful and probably reflective of their own of their own brains. Yeah. It seems like there's a, a tension in the lives of a lot of autistic people, and you kind of hinted at this when you were talking about Dora, but it seems like it's present in in all the readers in the book between, um, on the one hand, trying to, you know, this movement to embrace neurodiversity, and yet there's also 
a yearning to fit in, you know, a yearning to on some level feel normal or at least to not feel excluded. How do you navigate that as a, as a father and a scholar? It's a great question. So I remember in fourth grade when teachers really typing on his computer and one night he types on his computer, dad freak is ready for bed. And at that point, I, I recognize it as, as an adoptive father that I couldn't possibly, through my own love, um, make him feel good about himself, that we mm-hmm. really needed to uh, change the culture about um, diversity, about neurodiversity. And this is this whole journey that all sorts of uh, folks um, you know, must take, whether you're a trans kid, a black kid, if you're living in a culture as a minority that has valorized something other than you are, how do you, how do you make, take the steps to start affirming your difference while also, as you say, seek that, that, that feeling that we all want of being part of a community? One of the first things we did with my son was seek out other autistic people, mm-hmm. other self-advocates, go to conferences and the like. The other thing we did was um, really pursue this idea, this concept of neurodiversity, and explore it as much as possible. So I teach courses on it. I'm teaching next semester. I'll teach a course called NeuroLit, which um, takes up the novels and memoirs about uh, neurological conditions like autism, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, Tourette's, and we really get into the ways in which the culture represents these conditions and the way people who have these conditions would represent them. Uh And we look for ways in which these folks have created alternative subcultures or communities in which they can have that experience of fitting in while pushing forward mm. on the civil rights questions. Because nobody wants to fit in with a, uh, a, with a community that is an affront to what they value. Right. I mean, that's, that's a real challenge, but pushing, pushing a community forward. My son went to Oberlin, and he loved it, but he discovered very quickly that it couldn't be more progressive on every other issue but disability. And some of the folks who were unbelievably on the cutting edge of trans issues would say the most insensitive things about disability. But, but he alerted them. And they, they discovered, you know, I can't believe I do that. Like, why was I doing that? Why was I thinking these things? Um, and I think that's what, what a place like Oberlin or Grinnell can do is, is it can have you recognize you know, where do you need to do more work, you know? Uh I would also like to say that for the folks that had never felt like they had a good inclusion experience in school, the, the readerly journeys that I took with these people, I mean, some of them I knew a little bit. I mean, they became my friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really do think each chapter is also a story of what happens when people read a book together and invest in it. You can create a community that is um, transcendent in some ways. Uh, and so for Tito, yeah, I, I also Skyped him into Grinnell classes. Yeah. But we, we did something that few people ever do, read Moby Dick slowly over 17 <laughs> months. I mean, we were we were up there on the masthead with Ishmael, you know, tracking the wind, looking for whales. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that in and of itself 
was fitting in, fitting in in a grand way uh, with the story. One final thing about Tito, you know, Tito really loved the fact that after Melville's father dies, when Melville's still in his teens and the family can't afford to send him to college, he has to, you know, set out to sea as a common sailor. Mm -hmm. And he's really upset about this. To the point that he's got Ishmael say in Moby Dick at one point, about 150 pages in, um, a whale ship was my Yale College and my Harvard. And Tito really identified with that. And I think that the business of reading that novel, I hadn't thought about this at the beginning. It wasn't a setup on uh-huh. my part. But he thought, you know what, there are other folks that haven't, haven't enjoyed a college education there are other people, there are other communities, even with people no longer alive. I can commune with Melville. Mm-hmm. And there's something about this. Writers will do this. There are, there are writers, my son says, I speak to Harriet Tubman every day. I mean, when he first said that to me, I, I had to leave the room. I was my, like, I had, I had like shivers. But, you know, he, he thinks, he thought almost from the beginning of his own inclusion experience, it's the first fully included a non-speaking person with autism in Iowa as equivalent to being on the Underground Railroad, Mm -hmm. except his was the above-ground railroad with everyone staring at him. Mm. And, you know, he said he was seeking advice from her. There's that kind of community, too. Yeah. So in your Writers at Grinnell talk, you mentioned that there's some pioneering research that suggests uh, higher intelligence among autistics um, than neurotypical people. But I wonder if if your book isn't a more powerful way of showing that because a scientific study is not nearly as accessible. And as we see with like climate change research or other things like that, sometimes the numbers don't always make an impact um, or change our minds. But this book is kind of a, a hybrid of scientific research with literature. How do you see science and literature working together, at least in, in your field? Well, I mean, I think you really nicely described what what I was trying with this book. Here's what I would say is that there are different audiences, right? So so how compelling will this book be to would just a story of reading, a straight story of reading literature with some autistic people be to a kind of narrow traditional scientist? Mm. How compelling would, as you said, or accessible would just a standard study be? I think you need all of these things. Mm. And, And one of the things that I discovered as a parent, I needed to learn the neuroscience so I could, um, educate my son. Then I discovered the neuroscience on autism was wildly inadequate. It, it, it had all sorts of problems with it. It reflected all sorts of biases, and it didn't match up with what I was experiencing with my son. And on top of it, it generalized. Even as it talked about a spectrum, that was a spectrum of severity. Right. It, 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 it was still generalizing at every point along, along the spectrum. But the science science doesn't stand still. There's new science. As I said at the reading, um, there are plenty of autistics now working on teams. New research is coming about. And I thought what I could try to do with this book was use my experience as as a literature professor, as a writer, as a father, as somebody who's trained himself in neuroscience and received training in neuroscience, to produce a hybrid that would 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 do what you say, but also 
I mean, I don't really get into this in the book, but also would testify to the power of a liberal arts education. Because mm. um, I really believe in the liberal... I, I received one. I went to Wesleyan University uh, undergrad. And I think that experience of learning in a kind of broad, diverse, interconnected, political way um, laid a foundation that that allowed me at one point to say, I'm going to adopt this kid from foster care. It wasn't the only thing. It allowed me to do some very atypical things in my life, to think in a very atypical way about something that experts had said this about, and then to also be inventive about solutions mm. um, and get to a point where um, maybe uh, here's another account. Um, of what autism is or what what autistic strengths might be. And, I, and, I, and I'd like to say that, you know, there's this emerging field called neurohumanities that is trying um, quite vigorously to bring these two uh, fields together, science, neuroscience, and the humanities. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, Joe Nicer in philosophy teaches some neuro, neurohumanities courses, and I do too. And I think there's a lot to be said for seeing how stories can push back against the disadvantages of science and how science can push back against the disadvantages of, of, of a story as forms of knowledge. Uh-huh. And then together they kind of push forward our yeah. understanding. Yeah. While also trying to be sensitive to the needs of readers. Yeah. <laughs> like, because if the, if the book is boring... Um, it's not going to work because, again, as I told you, I want I want literature professors to read this book, but I want autistics to read this book. But I really, 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 really want high school, middle school teachers to read this book. I want guidance counselors to read this book. I want people to think it is perfectly natural for an autistic child to be in a language arts classroom or a creative writing class. Yeah, because we we've got a we've got a novel. That the only if the only thing somebody's read about autism, it's curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, or they've seen the play, and that stereotype has that kid being good at math, not understanding metaphor, not understanding irony, and sort of being mind blind, and that's that's devastating. Mm-hmm. That book is incredibly it's sold millions and millions and millions of copies, and I'm I'm pushing back against that. Yeah, can you talk a, just a little bit about how autistic readers are? in some ways kind of the ideal reader uh, yeah. and maybe what faults we have, neurotypical people have, um, that we're not able to really experience a book so viscerally. Yeah. So, you know, a long time ago I had a background in Slavic studies and actually lived in Poland um, just as the communists were falling before, during, and after. And I remember reading the Nobel Prize winning poet Czesław Miłosz's line about the importance of poetry in the Warsaw Ghetto when just the inconceivable horrors that the Nazis were were inflicting on people. And he said poetry was as essential as bread hmm. when people were starving. And I remember living in, in, in Poland at the beginning. I'd get on a bus. Someone told me, recite some lines by the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert, who was a solidarity poet, and watch the bus driver will say the next two lines, no matter where you start in the poem. And he'd do it. And I couldn't believe I was in a culture where the bus driver knew this. But within a year and a half, it stopped. 
Hmm. They embraced capitalism. Uh, as a friend of mine said, Rimbaud, the French poet, became Rambo. And suddenly the arts and literature lost some of their urgency. I don't want to romanticize because that urgency came at a terrible, terrible human cost. So the first point I'd like to make, and I saw it when I taught in the literature in prison program here, you have folks who want to invest in the experience of reading these books with everything they have. Like when I do a session with Tito on a Sunday morning, if I'm tired, if I'm fatigued, if I've got a million things to do and a million papers to grade and I'm thinking, I just like to drink coffee and I open, I turn on my Skype and there he is and he's got all these notes and all of these insights, I'm humbled. Right. I'm just humbled by the nature of the investment. And this was true. Even for Temple Grandin, Temple Grandin, I'd forgotten she had her own liberal arts undergraduate education. She's calling me on my cell phone and leaving me messages about all the things she remembered from 50 years ago in her lit class. Uh These folks had invested. And Grinnell students prepare. I love Grinnell students. But there is something really unbelievable about folks who don't have as many other choices and the way they invest. So that's really humbling and and inspiring. So that's part of it. The other thing I want to say is, and this comes back to some of the really intriguing research about autism, and it's related to the kind of scientific argument of the book. So Laurent Motron's team at the University of Montreal, and he he has um, a number of autistics on his team, he was one of the first people to notice that autistics tend to rely disproportionately on sensory cortices in the back of their brain. And then some of the work in cognitive literary studies showed that, for example, if I say to you the phrase red barn, not only are you using your traditional language centers, but you're going to use your visual cortex to process that. You're going to actually, you know, produce visual imagery of a red barn. Mm -hmm. And what is literature but language that disproportionately insists on concrete words that produce a range of mental imagery, whether it's visual, auditory, motor. There are some folks who can even produce gustatory and olfactory uh, mental imagery. So one of the things I noticed very quickly was that autistic readers seem to be producing mental imagery at an intensity level that I had not seen, uh-huh. even in some of the, 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 the most intense non-autistic readers. And this really became clear in the chapter with Jamie Burke where I read uh, Native American writer Leslie Marmon Silko's novel, Ceremony. It was unbelievable the degree to which this novel became this like Hollywood film with special (laughs) effects in his head Uh and the ways he could do things to the novel in his head. He could manipulate the images on the page. And in doing so, he really helped to explain the kind of spiritual geography in ways that I had no idea I didn't understand. And this was yet another example of how a different kind of brain brought to the business of reading something that I decided we truly we truly needed. One other point about this, you know, in reading Moby Dick with Tito, um, there's a, ver- a key moment where Ahab uh, confronts the carcasses of two giant dead whales, and he commands them to speak. He's so um, uh, disgusted 
by the fact that he can't get to the bottom of the mystery of these giant creatures. And Tito, like my son, is a non-speaking person. What I really gathered from reading that book with Tito was, never again do I want to teach Moby Dick without a non-speaking person in that classroom. Mm. What he brought to the business of understanding the whale's perspective, um, even the most sensitive, environmentally friendly speaking kid could not fathom what that novel's doing with this tension between speech and a lack of speech. Yeah. And, and all of this, we want as many different readers as possible. Diversity is good. It's not just good from some kind of, as a neoliberal sort of platitude. It's good because we learn more. Yeah. And I really believe that. And, yeah. and I've experienced it myself. Yeah. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And this is a, a truly wonderful book, and uh, I can't recommend it enough to people. Thank you for uh, taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. I wake up in a little room, and it takes a minute or two to adjust to the half-light darkness telling me it's time to Ralph Savarese is a professor of English here at Grinnell College. His book, See It Feelingly, came out this winter and is available now. Links to the book and some of his other work are available on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. His son, DJ, also produced a documentary about his journey navigating from high school to college, for which he won a Peabody Award. All of the people with whom Ralph read books have some incredible stories of their own and you can find out more about each of them on the website. Now, time for a little Grinnell music. And when I get home from work, it's already dark, so I listen to some lonely songs. Cause if there are other people who are lonely like me, then that means I'm not alone. The song you just heard is from Seth Hansen's most recent album, Not Too Deep, which he wrote and produced during the year after his graduation. Living in Grinnell, Seth settled into the next stage of life while processing the previous four years. The album as a whole grapples with the tension of how we remember and say goodbye to a special place. Check it out at theadditional6.bandcamp.com or find a link to the album on our website. Additional vocals on the album come from Isabel Cook and Rachel Eber, two fellow Grinnell musicians. On future episodes, we'll highlight some more Grinnell music, and I'll be sure to let you know whenever the sweet sounds you're hearing are courtesy of a fellow Grinnellian. If you want your music to be heard, get in touch with the podcast. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're going to take a plunge into the world of non-illusory theater as we talk with Rob Neal from the class of 1991 who was a founding member of the New York Neo-Futurists. What's a Neo-Futurist, you ask? You'll just have to wait and find out. Or look it up on the World Wide Web in the meantime, if it's really bugging you. We'll also chat with Ellen Meese, professor of theater and dance at Grinnell, who's directing this semester's production of Twelfth Night. A fitting choice, as she directed the same play 40 years ago, and this will be her last directing project before retirement. The play runs March 8th through 10th, So make sure you go out and see it if you're in Grinnell. And if you can't make it, you'll hear about it here on the podcast. 
that I have to say goodbye. To the town that took me in Into all the quiet streets And all of my new friends Now that they have become old friends That's what they'll be forever And when I'm looking back I'm sure we'll be together Even if I Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Pottington Bear, and Seth Hansen. For more information about the guests from today's show, check out the website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. If you like the show today, leave us a review, and make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. So the once this time's behind me. That's where it will be I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. My past at least can never